Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Devastating floods and fires in BC last year showed the havoc these disasters can bring to communities. But it also laid bare how vulnerable some communities are to widespread destruction from future emergencies. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Vancouver Sun reporters Gordon Hookstra and Glenda Limas join me to discuss an investigation that reveals just how unprepared some BC communities are, what's keeping communities from doing the necessary work, and how disaster-plagued residents feel heading into another flood and fire season. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Gordon and Glenda, what sparked this project that you've undertaken, looking into emergency preparedness in communities in BC that have been affected by wildfire and floods in recent years? Last year, we had one of the worst disaster seasons that we've ever had in British Columbia, both on the wildfire front and on the flood front. You know, it was one of the most extreme wildfire seasons that we've had in the last decade or so. And on the flood front, we had, uh, you know, a so-called atmospheric river, which is a big deluge of rain that comes from tropical storms that hit the parts of the province all at once and just created all kinds of devastation, flooded people out, farms, people washed out roads, people died, and people also died in the wildfire season. Mm -hmm. And Glenda, looking at the scope of the work, what communities were you looking at and how big a swath of the province and how many people are we talking about living in these areas? Well, what we eventually did is sent out a survey to, I, I think, I'm not sure how many communities we sent it out to, but 85 responded along with First Nations, representing about 3.7 million BC residents in those communities. We sent out a survey to them asking how ready they are, what the status of their flood and fire mitigation plans is and how much of the work they've completed. And yeah, yeah, we got responses from them. So this was documentation from various communities. Were there freedom of information requests involved? Like how did you source all of this information and how much information did you get back? So largely we depended on sort of like a number of different sources. So we got responses from the communities and from First Nations. And we also got information from regional districts, which represent sort of the rural areas of regions. And so we relied on that, some of that information, but also read oodles and oodles of where they had flood protection, you know, plans, read them. There's things called community wildfire protection plans. Same thing, spent 
hours and hours reading through there and pulling out information. We didn't use freedom of information. And so we also just scoured lots of independent reports that give information on this kind of thing. And then kind of amalgamated all that information to create kind of a picture of, you know, where communities were at. Some communities are, are dealing with both flood and wildfire threats, you know, and some communities are largely just one or the other. Looking at this from the broad 30,000 foot view at, you know, the provinces as a whole, what did your reporting uncover? Like how prepared or unprepared are these communities? I'd say we aren't very prepared and we've been warned. I think that was what was most surprising to me is that this isn't some secret that BC isn't necessarily at the right level to prevent floods and wildfires. There's been lots of reports over the years that say our dikes are too low. I think 71% of the dikes here in the lower mainland are vulnerable to overtopping. And this just comes from a 2016 report. Mm-hmm. And only 4% of segments, I think, are at the right level to protect from a 500-year flood. BC isn't prepared and we know that we need to be. It's just kind of a question of why aren't we then? Why hasn't this work been done? Gordon, in terms of wildfires, what is the preparation or lack thereof look like? Nearly two decades ago, we had a really horrendous wildfire season, which uh, uh, largely sort of focused on a a community, Kelowna, which burned a whole bunch of homes. And so there was kind of a bit of a wake-up call. And as a result of that, there was a major wildfire report written about what we might do about it. And so they laid out a bunch of different strategies for that. And part of it was to try and reduce the wildfire risk in the forest in and around communities. And so you do that by thinning the forest and cutting the underbrush and limbing the lower branches of the trees and kind of picking up the sticks on the ground so that there's less chance of having an intense fire that will go up into the crown and spread more quickly. It helps the firefighters fight the fires, but it also keeps the fire at a kind of lower intensity. And so there was kind of a swath of the province in terms of like hectares or square kilometers that would be needed to be treated in that kind of way. And we've only done less than 10% of that so far. Hmm. And so we've done some work, but there's just a lot more work that needs to be done. When you talk about the flooding preparation, Glenda, what are some areas of common deficit? Is it lack of a plan in general, or is it lack of a fully costed plan or just funding? Yeah, I think it's both actually. I think one only one third of the communities that we got responses from that, that's seven, 75 communities that we got responses from. Only one third had a comprehensive, fully costed plan. The other ones had partial plans or outdated plans or they weren't costed. So that's a definitely a common theme. And there's some communities actually that don't even have a plan, which is surprising. And then I think across the board, almost every community we spoke to, they have trouble financing it. They, they don't have the funds to do it. Mm-hmm. And so they're in a situation where they're applying for grants from the province to do the work. Sometimes they're denied the funding. Sometimes they only get partial funding. And some don't have the capacity to apply to the province because you need to have the consultant's report. You need to be have a clear picture of what you want to do. And then it takes a lot of time to apply for these grants. So some smaller communities don't have that capacity. It's very high cost, but also the system and the, the way that we approach this in BC, it seems to be flawed or seems to make it hard to get this work done. You talk about very high cost, and I found the numbers in your reporting quite 
Stark, what is the ultimate price for proper fire and flood mitigation in these communities? So we didn't have the whole picture of the whole province from the communities that we looked at on the wildfire front. You know, you're talking as much as six billion dollars to do the treatment on the other 90 percent of this forested land that's been identified. And on the flood side, we were nearly at eight billion dollars for the one third of the communities that had a kind of costed or partial costed plan. So that's obviously a huge underestimate. If you were to say that, you know, maybe it's $20 billion, you know, plus $6 billion. So it's a lot of money. When you talk about the communities that don't have a plan or don't have a fully costed plan, are we talking about just the size of the community that they just can't afford it, that this is a big roadblock for smaller communities in BC or or are there other roadblocks that kind of came up as part of your reporting? I think the smaller communities struggle for sure. Speaking to the mayor of Princeton, his community is very small, but has it's right on two rivers. And so they've got two major diking systems at least. And yeah, I think what they receive in taxes, every property taxes is around 3 million a year. And they need at least 5 million before it flooded. They needed 5 million to raise the dikes to the level that would have protected the community better. That's a huge cost for a small community. Larger communities, it depended. Each community's risk is different. So you might have a community like Pitt Meadows here in the lower mainland, which is a very agriculture based community and just has kilometers of dikes just because of where they're located. And so just to raise all those kilometers of dikes is a huge cost. And then also their tax base is quite limited because most of their land is agricultural. So it, it sort of depends. There's communities like Vancouver, which I think needs about a billion dollars by 2100, I guess, to prepare for sea level rise driven by climate change. So each community is slightly different because their risk is slightly different. And the cost then is, is related to that. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, you mentioned a couple of municipalities and communities that struggle in terms of resources or tax base. Are there other places that are better prepared, that have a better costed plan or have a fully funded plan? And, and how did they get to that? Yeah, definitely there is. You know, uh, Richmond, which is a community here right at the uh, end of the Fraser River Delta, it's, I think, about a meter above sea level. And so the risk for them has always been really significant. And I think they identified that early on and they have instituted like a special kind of property tax levy or fee maybe a decade ago or so. And they've kind of been slowly raising it each year. And so by the end of the decade, they'll raise about $30 million a year. It's not like it would pay for everything that they want to do and they still apply for government grants, but it gives them a lot more uh, control over what they want to do. And so they have a pretty robust system, but they're, you know, a situation where they're kind of a concentrated urban environment where they have lots of population, quite a bit of, you know, commercial and industrial base. So they have a pretty decent property tax base to draw from, but, you know, other communities don't have that. What are the politicians in these communities saying, you know, in, in communities where they either don't have a plan or don't have a fully costed plan, 
what help do they need? Are they looking to the province for help? Are they looking to the federal government for help? And how do they answer to their communities who, after a pretty tragic year in terms of natural disasters, their residents may want solutions and answers? Yeah, I think they kind of point to the system being flawed. Spoke to the Delta mayor. I think they need $1.9 billion to get their dikes to the right levels by, I think, yeah, 2100 again. And yeah, it is sort of frustration just at this high cost and just being left to shoulder this burden as a small municipality. They point to how the system right now is sort of a patchwork system where local governments are applying to higher levels of government for these works and they don't know if they're going to get the funding or not. And it also creates a system where local governments are just looking out for their own community. But of course, on the flooding side, the river runs through multiple communities and I think we should be looking at this strategically. Obviously, if the river floods, it's not just going to flood Delta or that little segment, it's going to flood the entire area. So this patchwork system just doesn't seem to be working for local governments. And I think local politicians are trying to sound the alarm about that. What about the people who study these issues? I imagine there's been a lot of work done researching climate change, the geography and the geology of BC. And what are they saying that communities may be in for going forward? Was last year a warning call that we need to expect more of this and we need to plan accordingly? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you can't you know, predict these things exactly, but you know, experts are saying that to expect more of this, you know, and more frequently. So, you know, I mean, to expect more atmospheric rivers, you know, that they're likely to happen more often and these kind of events will be more severe, to expect more wildfire seasons. I mean, I talked to a scientist in Washington State because we looked at some other jurisdictions and he said that, in fact, even though we've had increasingly sort of extreme fire seasons with like bigger, more intense fires, that the our best fire season years are behind us. That's what he said. So, I mean, it's expected only to get worse. Ultimately, there's a cost involved for doing all of this preventative work, but what's the cost for not doing it? Is the price tag for doing nothing or doing a limited amount of work higher than if they were to put the investment in? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think for the, the floods here in BC in November, one of the cost estimates I saw was that it will be about $10 billion. Wow. And that's just in recovery. That's not to actually improve the situation or prevent this from happening again. So that's a big cost compared to the cost of doing some of this preventative work. I think the federal government has promised $5 billion and the, the provincial government about $2 billion. But I also think that there's a human cost to doing nothing too. And and that really struck me as we worked on this, just talking to the people. I think 46,000 people were evacuated in BC for floods and fires last year. Mm-hmm. And we tabulated the numbers. And I think there's more than 1,600 people that are still displaced, that are still not living at home. And hearing their stories are, are heartbreaking because that's 10 months after Lytton burned and six months after the November floods or almost six months. And they're still out of their homes. And that has a high human cost. Like we talk to people that are struggling with anxiety, kids who aren't in school and that are doing online school for the last, since September, for for the last couple months, because they're not at home. They're not even in their community. I think that can't be underestimated as well. What do the people that you spoke with want to see done? What are they saying about who they want to be accountable or at least to take the responsibility of doing something about this issue? I think they just want some accountability, you know, I mean, I think too, that they would like to see some kind of prioritization about where money gets spent. So, 
you know, if there is X amount of funding and, you know, some of it's going to go to response and recovery. But the bigger question is, is about how much is going to be spent on the actual work to beef up protection, you know, and so that it would mitigate what happens next. And so they want to see, particularly because it's the senior levels of government that have that money, make decisions about, you know, I guess with the community involvement about where that takes place. And, you know, we talked to one farmer in the Fraser Valley who, you know, they were hit really hard during the floods and now they're dealing with the cool spring so they can't plant. So, you know, they're just really having a hard time. And, you know, when I asked him, well, when do you think this should happen? His answer was right now. You know, last year was a particularly bad year, but as you said earlier, that people feel that the good fire years are probably behind us. What is projected for this year? Are there concerns about a repeat of last year for fires? And then come the fall and the winter, are there concerns about major flooding this year? Yeah, I think early indications are that we're headed for a hot, dry summer here in BC, particularly August. So that doesn't bode well on the fire front. And actually here in BC, the flood risk, surprisingly, is usually higher in the spring when the snow melts from the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so, as Gord said, we're in the middle of a really cold spring. And I just checked the snowpack levels, and they're about 121% of normal right now. So the snow up in the mountains is higher than average across the province. And so if that stays that way, and we get a really sudden hot spell, all that snow can melt and come down the rivers. And that's when we see the most significant flooding usually in BC. So it's a real uncertain thing. It really depends on the melt. If we get a slow, gradual melt, we might not see any flooding this year in spring. But Because some flood defenses and communities are just patched together, there's real concerns that we could see flooding this spring and then fall as well. If we keep getting these massive storms and atmospheric rivers become more common, we could see more flooding in the fall as well. So it's a little scary to look into the future that way, but that's why we, I guess we have to do something or we should be doing something if we want to prevent these things from happening again. This is all covered in a a seven-part series, VancouverSun.com. What can readers expect from the rest of the series? You know, we have a sort of a main story that sort of lays out our findings. And then we take a closer look at uh, both the flood and uh, uh, wildfire situation by going into some communities. Both of us went out and visited some communities and talked to people on the ground. We also uh, talked to some First Nations. So we got a story about that. Also, we talked to some of the displaced people and what that's all about. And also the last piece is anchored by what, might be a different way of looking at these kind of things. You know, I mean, a lot of times we talk about building up dikes, you know, but as there are different ways to do these kind of things and, you know, I mean, uh, maybe taking some lessons from other jurisdictions. It's certainly a fascinating read, very important work being done in terms of uncovering just how prepared these communities need to be to manage these kind of emergencies in the future. Gordon and Glenda, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests Gordon Huckstra and Glenda Limus. You can find their whole Fire and Flood Facing Two Extreme series at VancouverSun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 